chapter 1. If you want to follow along the most completely, you'll want to turn to 1 Timothy chapter 1, Acts chapter 16, and find a map of Paul's missionary journeys. Whether it's in the back of your Bible or if you have a study Bible, it might have those missionary journey maps and like Acts uh, 16 through 20, 13 through 20, somewhere in there. So yeah, it's going to be one of those. <laughs> we have a couple of sermon series that we're working on. One series is on church membership, what is expected out of church members, what God uh, requires of them. That we'll do uh, later on this morning at the 11.30 service. The other series is following the church at Ephesus through the New Testament. And we've been on that for about a year. We began with Paul's missionary journeys, which founded the church at Ephesus. And then still in Acts on his third missionary journey, the apostle stayed in Ephesus for about two and a half years. If you remember, he rented out a a lecture hall to preach and teach daily. And then in Acts 20, of course, he's headed back towards Jerusalem and he wants to minister to the church at Ephesus, but he doesn't want to get bogged down there. So he stops at a a port city nearby named Miletus and he calls the elders of the uh, church at Ephesus to meet him there. We spent a considerable amount of time going through the letter that he wrote to the church at Ephesus after he got to Jerusalem and was arrested and Paul's in prison, but he still wants to minister to them, so he writes them that letter. But now there's more. This is probably about a year after writing that letter to the church at Ephesus. As Paul seeks to help the church at Ephesus, he leaves a young pastor named Timothy to lead the church. So let's read the introduction to this letter. And you'll note in verse 3, Timothy was left at Ephesus with the specific task of leading the church. First Timothy chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the commandment of God our Savior and our Lord Jesus Christ, which is our hope, unto Timothy... My own son in the faith, grace, mercy, and peace from God our Father and Jesus Christ our Lord. As I besought thee to abide still at Ephesus when I went into Macedonia, that thou mightest charge some that they teach no other doctrine, neither give heed to fables and endless genealogy which minister questions, rather than godly edifying, which is in the faith, so do. Now, it's not going to be my intention to go through these letters that Paul writes to Timothy in quite the same way we did Ephesians. In fact, it's been about four years ago that we finished uh, uh, preaching through the pastoral epistles of First and Second Timothy and Titus. So we've, we've covered this ground in the past. But I do think that we can draw some helpful points in some passages with implications about the church at Ephesus. And so this morning, I just want to start with an introduction 
to these letters to Timothy. And you know how I like to try to connect some dots. And so that's why I have you with, uh, you know, one finger in 1 Timothy and another in Acts and trying to, to juggle a map. So let's start by reminding ourselves for a moment about the history between Paul and Timothy. You know, you can, you can take a, a glance at one of those maps of Paul's missionary journeys, that first missionary journey. This is where the events of Scripture lead to a little bit of sanctified speculation. One of the destinations of Paul and Barnabas on their first missionary journey is the city of Lystra, which is located in sort of south-central Asia Minor. It is very likely the preaching of Paul and Barnabas in Lystra, while they ministered to the Jews in the synagogue in that city, that the gospel caught the ear of two women in that synagogue named Lois and Eunice. Paul mentions these two women in the second letter he writes to Timothy. He says in 2 Timothy 1.5, when I call to remembrance the unfeigned or the sincere faith that is in you, which first dwelt in your grandmother Lois, and your mother Eunice, and I'm persuaded in you also. So it is quite possible, in fact, I would say it's likely, that the young man Timothy heard the gospel while Paul and Barnabas were in Lystra on that first missionary journey. What we can say for certain is that on Paul's second missionary journey with Silas, they are coming back through Lystra about two to three years later, and Acts 16 describes the events for us. Acts 16, verses 1 through 3, says he came to Derby and Lystra, and behold, a certain disciple was there named Timothy, the son of a certain woman. And we know from 2 Timothy that woman's name is Eunice which was a Jewess or a Jewish woman and believed, but his father was a Greek, which was well reported of by the brethren that were at Lystra and Iconium. Him would Paul have to go forth with him and took and circumcised them because of the Jews that were in those quarters, for they all knew that his father was a Greek. Okay, so this is our first introduction to Timothy, and it doesn't tell us how old he is, but he has to be fairly young. At this point, he is probably in his mid to late teens at most, because about 15 years later, Paul's going to write this letter to uh, 1 Timothy, and he says to him in 1 Timothy 4.12, let no man despise your youth. So if he's in his mid-teens, when he joins Paul and Silas on this second missionary journey, then that puts him probably around 30 or in his early 30s at the time Paul writes this first letter to him. This is a relatively young age, combined with the fact that Timothy was saved under Paul's preaching, is what leads Paul in our text in 1 Timothy 1 verse 2 to call him my own son in the faith. There is this very close relationship between these two men. Now, because Timothy's mother is Jewish and his father was a Gentile, Timothy would have been considered to be a Jew. However, 
it's apparent that there was some family tension in this regard because Timothy's father, as a Greek Gentile, seemingly forbade Timothy from being circumcised, from being initiated as a Jew. So as the son of a believing Jewish woman and an unbelieving Gentile father, we can only speculate how Timothy might have had a difficult time asserting his own views on the subject of faith. Certainly it seems one of Paul's purposes as he writes these letters to encourage Timothy is to get him to get over this kind of natural shyness and reluctance he had in order to just go out and boldly proclaim the word of God. Now, if you remember on the first missionary journey, Paul and Barnabas had brought Barnabas's nephew, John Mark, with them to serve or to help them on the journey. There were day-to-day tasks that John Mark probably handled. Things like carrying the baggage or cooking food or arranging a place to stay. Sort of thankless, menial jobs. But it's probably those kind of tasks that John Mark was expected to handle. But when John Mark got on the way in that first missionary journey, he decided he didn't want to do it anymore and he abandoned them on that first missionary journey. And Paul determined when he started to go to a second missionary journey, he was not going to run that same play a second time. Right? He was not going to try the experiment with John Mark again. Even though Barnabas... John Mark's uncle wanted to. And the contention was so great between Paul and Barnabas that they split ways. Barnabas took John Mark and went out to serve. And from everything we can tell, they served successfully. Paul took Silas and begins on his second missionary journey. And along the way, as they stop in Lystra, they Acts 16 is describing they encounter Timothy, this young man who everyone has a, a good thing to say about in, in, those, uh, in that area. And they pick up Timothy and they bring him with them on the work. Timothy is probably serving in that second missionary journey, doing the same kind of work John Mark had been expected to do on the first missionary journey. But this adds... Uh, there's, there's a little complication that gets added to that. Timothy was not a physically strong individual. He had some kind of chronic stomach ailment. We know that Paul is going to advise him in 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 23, to not drink the water, but to use a little wine, quote, for thy stomach's sake and thy often infirmities. Right, So Timothy, in doing these menial tasks, would have to be patient with the work he was given. Meanwhile, Paul and Silas would need to be patient with Timothy's chronic illnesses. So starting with his second missionary journey, Timothy begins to accompany Paul and Silas in their work. And in Paul's customary greetings and the letters that he writes... Timothy's name appears in five of those letters, in Philippians, Colossians, Philemon, and both the letters to the church at Thessalonica. Now, those first three letters were almost assuredly written from Rome while Paul was imprisoned, meaning 
Timothy stuck with him on his missionary journeys as he got arrested and also got transported to Rome. So at this point, we need to bring this church at Ephesus into the conversation. You know the city of Ephesus. We've talked about it. It was known as the Light of Asia. It had a population of about 300,000 residents. Easily one of the largest cities of that time. Growing up in Asia Minor, Ephesus would have been, it would have loomed large in Timothy's mind. It would have been like that big city that everybody talks about. Sort of, sort of like Chicago for a kid growing up in central Illinois. Ephesus was lavish in many ways. This main street, we've talked about the Arcadian Way, which uh, was 100 feet wide, paved with marble, right? They had, they had lighted streets at night. The end of that road, there was this 25,000 per- person amphitheater. The first time that Paul visited Ephesus at the end of the second missionary journey, the same one where he picked up Timothy, Nothing much is said because Paul didn't stay long. If you're still there in Acts, look over at Acts chapter 18 for a moment. Acts chapter 18, starting at verse 19. It says, And he came to Ephesus and left them there, but he himself entered into the synagogue and reasoned with the Jews When they desired him to tarry longer time with them, he consented not. He wouldn't stay any longer, but bade them farewell, saying, I must by all means keep this feast that comes in Jerusalem, but I will return again unto you if God will. And he sailed from Ephesus. So it's clear Paul was determined to keep this promise that he made to those saints on that second missionary journey. And about a year later, on the third missionary journey, Paul leaves Antioch, stops at a few churches along the way, but makes essentially a beeline for Ephesus, and he arrives there at the beginning of Acts chapter 19. We won't go through all of it, but he baptized 12 disciples who had been disciples of John the Baptist after he preached the gospel to them. He preaches in the synagogue for three months. He rents out that lecture hall of a man named Tyrannus, Uh, for uh, full two years through the rest of that chapter in Acts 19. He casts out demons. He sees magicians saved by the power of the gospel. He writes letters to churches, sending some letters out by the hand of Timothy and others. So while at Ephesus for this two and a half years, for example, he writes a letter to the church at Corinth that we've come to know as 1 Corinthians. And it's here that we start getting this glimpse of Paul using Timothy for more than just a servant of earthly needs, but a servant of, you know, ministry issues, a servant of the gospel. And in the letter he sends to the church at Corinth, you don't need to turn there, but I'll I'll read this to you. He mentions when he writes that letter to Corinth that he intends to send Timothy to preach to them. 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 17 says, For this cause I sent unto you Timothy, who is my beloved son and faithful in the Lord, 
who shall bring to you into remembrance of my ways which be in Christ as I teach everywhere in every church. Later on in 1 Corinthians, in, in chapter 16, verses 10 and 11, just listen to this, I love this. It says, when Timothy comes, see that he may be with you without fear, for he works the work of the Lord as I also do. Let no man therefore despise him, but conduct him forth in peace, that he may come unto me, for I look for him with the brethren. So he is entrusting some work to Timothy, some vital work, carrying letters, preaching the gospel. But he also has concerns about the way the church at Corinth is going to treat Timothy. Right? There seems to, this seems to be a little bit of a, a trial balloon in ministry. Like, let's see how this works out. Specifically, he told the church at Corinth, I'm sending Timothy to you. He's a worker in the Lord. Don't make him afraid of you. Don't let anyone disrespect him. Receive him in peace and send him back peacefully. Like, don't, don't send him back in pieces. Send him back peacefully. So think about what this tells us about Timothy. And his commentary on 1 Corinthians, David Pryor refers to Timothy as, quote, a sensitive, nervous, and hesitant minister who constantly needed to be boosted in his morale. And I think that's right. Later on in 2 Timothy, Paul's going to write and encourage him by saying, you know, remember, God's not given us the spirit of fear, but of, of uh, power and of love and of a sound mind, right? Timothy was not a super assertive, super confident guy. He was prone to fear. He was prone to getting overwhelmed by assertive people. Now, did anything happen in their time at Ephesus that would have made Timothy particularly afraid? Well, how about a citywide riot against Christianity? You know, remember, it was at Ephesus where that that silversmith's guild threw the entire town into an uproar, shouted for hours, great as Artemis of the Ephesians. And just because the city clerk told them to stop the riot before the Roman army showed up, that doesn't mean that the hostility in the city against Christians immediately died down. There was opposition from outside the church that was tense, the opposition to Christ from inside the church was also on the rise. Look over at Acts chapter 20, and you'll remember in verse 28 through 31, Paul warned the elders at Ephesus, Take heed, therefore, unto yourselves and to all the flock of God, over which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers, to feed the church of God, which he has purchased with his own blood. For I know this, that after my departing, so when I leave, grievous wolves will enter in among you, not sparing the flock. Also of your own selves shall men arise, speaking perverse things, to draw away disciples after them. Therefore watch and remember that by the space of three years I cease not to warn everyone night and day with tears. Now, just take a moment. I, I know uh, we're... This is coming fast, right? But take a moment to kind of bring all this together into your mind. And remember that these are real people. These aren't characters in some fictional story. Timothy had that 
faithful influence of his mother and grandmother, but a negative spiritual influence from his father. It's probably a lot of reason for why he was timid and fearful. He grew up with Ephesus as sort of the the big city looming in the background. He was with Paul and Silas when they got to Ephesus and first preached the gospel. He was still there with Paul as he stayed every day in Ephesus for two and a half to three years. And while in Ephesus, Timothy essentially grew up spiritually and started to be used more and more in the ministry, right? Paul sends him with a letter to the church at Corinth because Timothy is maturing and as he matures, he is more useful for ministry purposes. Now, I just, I can't resist to just say this as a side note. Can you imagine having a pastor or elder of your church who grew up in the church and you remember as a little kid running around the building doing stupid things? Right, he's essentially grown into maturity as a Christian while at that church at Ephesus. How easy is it to respect a young man that you remember as being a dumb kid? And even though Timothy is grown into a faithful minister, Paul is obviously concerned about how he's going to handle situations where there's conflict, right? He wrote to the church at Corinth, don't make them afraid. Don't let anybody be disrespectful to them. Send them back to me in peace and not in pieces. When Paul finally leaves Ephesus, there are violent threats to Christianity from outside the church. There is certain trouble brewing inside the church. And Paul even tells the elders at Ephesus that I know as soon as I leave, there's going to be problems. So, who should Paul leave in charge? I think it's an understatement to say that Paul makes an interesting choice by leaving Timothy with this job. When you start putting that all together, it puts this letter that he writes to Timothy into more perspective, right? The gospel in many ways is thriving in Ephesus, but the population as a whole hates it and opposes it. Meanwhile, within the church, there are attacks from false teachers that Paul warned about. And so, as Paul writes Timothy in this letter, 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 3, I besought you to abide still at Ephesus. Look what's happening. Exactly what Paul said would that you might charge some that they teach no other doctrine. Timothy's task is to take the leadership role of the church at Ephesus to expand the gospel's influence in the city, all while faithfully fighting against false teaching rising up within the church. In fact, you can look down at chapter 1, verse 20. We even know a couple of the names of some false teachers, a couple of guys named Hymenaeus and Alexander. And as we go through this first letter that, Tim, that Paul writes to Timothy, it tells us sort of the, the situation of the church at Ephesus. You have church members who don't know how to behave, 
right? And it's not just one group. When you get over to chapter 5, it gives a section on older men and younger men and older women and younger women and widows and single mothers and masters and servants, all of which needed some straightening out. You have some members who have such a hair-triggered temperament that accusations and rumors are swirling about elders. And so Paul informs Timothy not to take accusations against elders easily, but when an accusation is made against an elder, get to the bottom of it and see that it's dealt with appropriately. Paul outlines the qualifications for elders and pastors in this letter because apparently there were unqualified men in church leadership and clearly there were qualified men who either were not stepping up to serve or the church was refusing to recognize their qualifications and allow them to serve. Timothy needed to deal with women who were speaking out in the assembly in ways that was usurping or seizing authority within the church. There's there's plenty of problems facing Timothy at the church at Ephesus, and all those issues are serious. But above all of those, some elders had become false teachers, abandoning the sincere faith and using their position in the Lord's church as a platform for their empty doctrine. When we go through this letter, we can even identify some of the things that the false teachers were, were teaching. They were abandoning the basics of doctrine that the Apostle Paul had taught them, right? In verse 3, you make sure that you don't, you, you charge some that they teach no other doctrine, right? Different kinds of doctrine in place of Paul's genuine apostolic truth. They had replaced it in verse 4 with fables and genealogies. Right? They had apparently grasped portions of the Old Testament along with old wives' tales and produced some kind of new faith to follow based on mythical stories and trying to prove who it is that you descended from. Paul says in verse 4 that that confounded the church in two different ways in chapter 1, verse 4. First, by what it did, he says it ministered questions. Right, It only serves to cause disputes. And second, by what it failed to do, it does not lead to, he says, godly edifying, or it doesn't build up the church in faith. And go further and see that they misuse the Old Testament law in verse 7, desiring to be teachers of the law, understanding neither what they say nor whereof they affirm. Right? So up in verse 3, they were trying to teach another truth in verse 7. They said that they were teaching God's truth. Paul says they don't even understand what it is that they're saying. Sort of ignorance and arrogance represented there as a deadly combination. As a result, some of these false teachers had, according to the end of verse 19, concerning faith had made a shipwreck. Get the picture that Paul's painting here. Up in verse 6, he says these false teachers had swerved and turned aside. And now as a consequence, they've made a shipwreck. If we were writing this today, maybe we would use a driving analogy and say they've lost the stabilizing factor of truth so they keep getting off course and going over the center line or into the ditch, and the accident they caused is going to destroy themselves 
and others who get caught up in the collision. And what's, wor- what's worse, they don't feel bad about what they're doing to others or how they've been an offense to Christ. Over in chapter 4, verse 2, Paul describes that their consciences are seared, right? They don't, they don't feel badly about this sin anymore. Look over at chapter 6 for a second. 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 3 through 5. Paul writes, If any man teach otherwise, and consent not to wholesome words, even the words of our Lord Jesus Christ, and to the doctrine which is according to godliness, he is proud, knowing nothing, but doting about questions and strifes of words whereof can comes envy, strife, railings, evil surmisings, perverse disputings of men of corrupt minds and destitute of the truth, supposing that gain is godliness, from such withdraw thyselves. So they were proud, ignorant in the literal sense of the word, craving controversy, thriving on causing division. They had embraced their position in the church as a means to get wealthy, right? Supposing that gain is godliness. From such, withdraw yourselves. That is, if they won't be corrected, they have to be avoided. All in all, Paul is entrusting quite a job to young Timothy. Especially knowing that Timothy is this kind of timid, non-assertive guy. So how is it that Timothy is going to be able to accomplish the work in the church at Ephesus that Paul's left him for? Well, it's only through being confident in the Lord Jesus and the love of God towards us. Paul says in chapter 4, verse 10, we both labor and suffer reproach because we trust in the living God. The Lord Jesus has loved us and has saved us. He has gifted us and he has placed us within his church. Even timid and weak men like Timothy are called to achieve lofty goals through love and dedication to the Lord Jesus and through a love for those whom the Lord Jesus loves. In this case, the church. Specifically, the theme of this letter is found in chapter 3, verses 14 and 15. These things I write unto you, hoping to come to you shortly, but if I tarry long, that you may know how you ought to behave yourself In the house of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and ground of the truth. And you have to like how Paul encourages Timothy here. He is saying, I hope to come to you shortly, but if I tarry long, in other words, you can do this, and I'm going to be there soon. Maybe. Maybe. But if you want to see this as, as we finish, because all, for all the problems that this describes and all the challenges that Timothy is facing in the church at Ephesus, this letter is not viewing the Lord's church as a problem to be endured. This letter has a very high view of the church, a church that's full of problems. 
right? In verse 15, he says that you may know how you ought to behave yourself in the house of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and ground of the truth. The church is the assembly of the living God. It is the the ground of the truth. It is the foundation upon which the world will see and hear truth. And it is the pillar of truth. The pillar, like a a column that, that holds things up, right? The church is the foundation of the truth. It's the pillar that upholds the truth. This letter is going to guide Timothy on this monumental task he's facing, all the while reminding him that the church of Ephesus, for its many flaws, and our church, for our many flaws, is still the church of the living God, the foundation and pillar upholding the truth. So our goal I'm not going to preach through this letter verse by verse. But we will look at some specific sections of this letter that Paul writes to Timothy to see how Paul's instructions to Timothy were written to help him encourage and build up the church at Ephesus. 